I wonder how you respond when you receive a wedding invitation. Uh, Maybe it depends on who it's from. I remember one year when I was in my 20s receiving seven wedding invitations. And I went to six of them, but I couldn't face the seventh. It was just too much. It was nothing to do with the friends who had invited me. Um, I just had had enough of weddings, especially as a single guy. Well, you mean, James, as a single guy without a friend. Yes, that too. (laughs) Well, I hope my friends weren't insulted. Though, come to think of it, I'm not sure I've seen them since they got married. But at their best, weddings are a happy, joyful celebration, a time when we are invited to join in with the couple's happiness, a time when we are welcomed and wined and dined at their expense or their family's expense, and a time when we are reminded of the great love that Jesus Christ has for his people, the church. For marriage is a picture, it is a visual aid of that marriage made in heaven between Jesus and his people. It's a picture of the love that God has for you and for me, a love that invites us to come to the feast, to to what the Bible calls the marriage supper or the wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19, verse 9. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Well, the Lamb is the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, before we dive into the clear waters of this parable, it is worth noting, as as Michael Green has said, that the nature of the kingdom of heaven is not a funeral, but a feast. It's not a funeral, but a feast. It's a celebration of what God has done for us. It's a celebration of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what he has given to us in Jesus Christ, and all because of his love for sinners like you and like me. Yes, it's true, there is a place for sadness and sorrow and lament within the kingdom of God here on earth, here on earth. But if the overall impression we give to outsiders and unbelievers is that our faith is is like a wake, more like a wake than a wedding, that our religion, as they see it, is a burdensome thing rather than a joyful thing, then something is wrong. There's a reason for the caricature of Scottish Presbyterianism or Highland Presbyterianism. There's a reason for that caricature as it being dour and joyless. We might protest and we would protest and say, well, it shouldn't be like that. and It's not all like that at all. But like most caricatures, there's a nugget of truth at the heart of it. And it's not a God-honoring nugget. You see, it is possible to know all the lyrics of the gospel, but never to sing its melody. It is possible to know all the words of the song of grace, all the words of the doctrines of grace, but never to sing it. Well, God invites us to a feast, not to a funeral. Now, turning to this parable, which the parable is in Matthew 2, really verses 2 to 13, With a top and a tail, Jesus tells us the story in three acts. A three-act parable, if you like. The first act is verses 2 to 7, where we have a warning, a warning about refusing the gracious invitation of the king. And then secondly, in the second act, there's the invitation that the king sends out to everyone, verses 8 to 10. And then the third act 
is another warning, a warning about thinking we can accept the king's invitation on our own terms. Thinking we can accept the king's invitation on our own terms, verses 11 to 13. And then in verse 14, Jesus teaches us something that the parable demonstrates that many are invited, but few are chosen. I don't think I'm going to have time to deal much with that uh, today, but I can send out out some um, relevant uh, articles about that uh, afterwards. Well, the first act, verses 2 to 7, a warning about refusing the gracious invitation of the king. If you look at verse 3, do you notice that the king had already invited these people to come to his son's wedding reception? He sent his servants to those who had been invited. They had already received their invitation to the banquets. And the servants were being sent out to tell them now to come. So they had plenty of time to get ready if they'd wished. Which is just like the Jewish people. Who had centuries to get ready to respond to God's invitation. For example in Isaiah 55 verse 1 we read. Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Isn't that good news in a time of financial tightening of belts and cost of living rocketing? Come, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And Isaiah, like the other prophets, was sent out by God the King to deliver his invitation. And there were other servants, other messengers down through the ages until the time would come when the invitation was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Messiah into this world. And you see, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is now at hand. The time has come for God's people to make their way to the feast in God's kingdom, to the banquet in honour of God's son Jesus of Nazareth, who is Christ the Lord. But, verse 3, They refused to come. They would not come. You know, like me not going to that seventh wedding that year, it's not that they could not come, it's that they would not come. And God is sovereign in our salvation. There is no doubt about that. God is sovereign in our salvation. But God's sovereignty never removes our human responsibility. We are not robots We are not pre-programmed creatures. We are responsible creatures made in the image of God to glorify God. Well, back to the parable, it seems that the original guests in the story did not think much of their king or his son. Quite the reverse. But notice in verse 4 that the king sends more servants. He gives them another opportunity to come. Verse 4, he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited. And in fact, it's clearer in, in, in some other translations. There's a personal appeal here. Tell those I've invi- who've been invited, look, behold, I have prepared my dinner. The food is ready. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Come to the feast. But again, in verse 5, we read, they paid no attention. Some had other priorities. They went off to their fields and farm, others to their business. They simply shrugged their shoulders at the king's invitation. But in verse 6, others were more vicious in their rejection. 
They seized his servants. They ill-treated them. They killed them. They showed what they really thought of the king by the way they treated those who came in his name. And that was the tragedy of the Pharisees who thought they were honouring God. They showed actually what they really thought of the true God by the way they treated Jesus, who was God the Son, who came full of grace and truth and welcomed sinners and ate with them. And it's still the same today, isn't it? Still some react with outright hostility to God's gracious invitation. Still the preachers of the gospel are being ill-treated and even killed. If you, if you pay any attention at all, and I recommend you to, to sign up to any of the organizations that support persecuted Christians across the world, whether it's Open Doors or Release International or uh, whatever, you will know that every day our brothers and sisters are facing outright hostility and even being killed for their faith in Christ, for daring to bring the good news of the gracious invitation to the feast. But many others, especially in our own land, many others react with indifference, with a shrug of the shoulders to God's gracious invitation. We have better things to do, more important things to do, other things to do. It doesn't have to be the farm or the business. It can be anything at all in that list of priorities, whether family or leisure. And we treat God's invitation of grace as if it's just another flyer in the post inviting us to sign up to City Fibre. If you've got as many of those flyers as I've had, there's been lots of invitations, but I haven't responded to them. And sometimes people treat God's invitation of grace like that. And maybe you're here, you're here today, it doesn't matter whether you're young or you're old, and you've heard God's invitation of grace time and time again. But the truth is you're more concerned with the things of this world, things that will not last. You want to be king in your own life. And therefore you resist the rightful claim that God has on you and reject all that he has done for you in preparing the feast of grace for you. All that he has done for us through Jesus so that everything is ready. Everything is ready for you to be reconciled to God. Everything is ready. Jesus has done it on the cross for you. So there is a warning to us here today as well as to Jesus' original listeners to refuse the invitation of the high king of heaven is not a light thing. To refuse the invitation of the high king of heaven to his beloved son's wedding is not a light thing. It is the most reckless and foolish thing that you or I or anyone could ever do. You know, I don't know, the couple whose wedding I didn't go to that year, perhaps they were secretly pleased that I didn't go. One less mouth to feed. And that's true, actually. You know, we bumped, Jane and I, my wife and I bumped into a, a young lad on the Isle of Skye last week, and he's planning to get married in the autumn. And he was saying, you know, it's really good when people reply saying they can't come. <laughs> so. But in the passage, God is not pleased when his son's Honour is insulted and his authority is mocked. And in the parable, the king is angry at the insult he and his son have received. He is angry at the way his servants have been treated, ill-treated and even killed. And he is provoked to wrath at their murderous rejection of his authority. So in verse 7, the king acts in a way that would be familiar to Jesus' listeners and even to us here today. 
He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king acts to punish those who have rebelled against him and rejected his authority. And that, if we were to read on into the next chapter, in chapter 23, Jesus spells it out very clearly. Spelling out the woes against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the so-called Jewish experts. And then he ends up saying this, Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city of David, the city of the Messiah. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, says Jesus, look, your house is left to you desolate. And in AD 70, the Roman armies of Titus destroyed Jerusalem. Well, make sure you hear. Isn't this important? Make sure you hear Jesus' warning and make sure you do something about it. Do not refuse God's gracious invitation to come to the feast, the wedding banquet of his son. Otherwise, as Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 33, how will you escape being condemned to hell. Well, the good news is that there is a way of, to escape being condemned to hell, and we see that in Acts 2 of the parable, Act 2, verses 8 to 10. Act 2 is the invitation that King sends out to everyone. Uh, when my wife and I got married, we had to draw up a guest list, and if you've ever had to do that, you will know it's not an easy job. Uh, especially if you come from a large family and have lots of friends. Well, I had the large family. Jane had lots of friends. Um, and quite a large family too. But during COVID, I know things were different during COVID, but I suspect during COVID it was both harder because numbers were limited, but perhaps it was easier. You could say, ah, I can't ask you because of COVID, you know. So anyway, we did our best to restrict the numbers to the number the hotel could cope with, and more importantly, the numbers we had agreed Uh, with Jane's parents. However, in the last few days running up to the wedding, we discovered that Jane's mum was inviting people she had just bumped into (laughs) at the Cope, the co-op in Broadford. She was like, yeah, just come, come. Yeah, I know it's just three days away, but just come anyway. I wasn't here last week, but just like the workers in the vineyard who were hired late in the day and got paid the same as those who were hired earlier, You see, those folks in the Broadford Co-op received the same invitation that others had received months earlier. And they had the same right to be there, to be at the feast on the day itself. And you see, in the parable, the king is determined that his son will be honoured, that all his preparations, everything is ready. He is determined that it will not go to waste. So he sends his servants out onto the streets and the roads and the street corners to invite, verse 9, anyone, do you notice? Anyone you find. Anyone you find. The good news of the gospel is that while it's, if you've been following the the kind of competition, the race for who's going to be the next uh, prime minister, effectively the next leader of the Conservative Party, well, Our future Prime Minister, whether it's a he or a she, they might want to put a cap on the number of those seeking refuge in the UK, but God never puts a cap on the number of those he invites to the wedding banquet of his son. 
anyone you can find. Look at verse 10. The bad as well as the good. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And there are three things here for us to note, aren't there? Firstly, the wideness of God's mercy. The wideness of God's mercy. Yes, Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, but when his own people did not receive him or believe in him, it was the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who responded to the invitation of grace gladly. It was those who received their wedding invitation much later in the day who came to the feast. And the glory of the gospel is that all those who receive Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in his name has the right to become a child of God, has a right to their seat at the table. That's the wideness of God's mercy. Secondly, notes the indiscriminate nature of God's grace. The indiscriminate nature of God's grace. It's for the good And for the bad. And no doubt for the ugly as well. It's for younger sons as well as older sons. Thinking of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's for prisoners as well as priests. And of course some priests are prisoners. It is for drug addicts as well as fitness freaks. And some fitness freaks take drugs as well. Which tells us actually our view of what is good and bad is often flawed. We don't see everything God sees. But the good news of the gospel is the indiscriminate nature of God's grace. It's for those we think good and those we think bad. So the wideness of God's mercy, the indiscriminate nature of God's grace. And then thirdly, it teaches us something about the nature of our mission. If we are Christians today, the nature of the mission of the church. We are sent out as God's servants to take the message, to take the invitation of God's grace. Well, to whom? To whom? That's a real question. That's not a rhetorical question. To whom? To anyone we can find. We take the invitation from Jesus to anyone he can find. Young, to the children, to the older people. Sorry, I'm looking over here and saying older people. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, To the bad, as well as the good. To those whose t-shirts are really mucky. That's the nature of our mission. To those begging for money in the high street as well as those banking their money in the high street. To the popular person at work. Oh, and here's the challenge to the person at work that nobody gets on with and is hard to deal with. Oh, that's hard. They too need to receive the invitation to come to the feast. Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. Oh, we can only do that with the help of the Spirit of Christ. We can't do that in our own strength. We need the Spirit's help, which God has promised to give freely to those who ask, to share the love of Jesus with the good and the bad. Uh, John Newton, you'll be familiar, I think most of you, with John Newton, the captain of the slave trading ship who was converted and was the author of Amazing Grace and became a, a, a vicar a minister in a church and on one occasion another minister was speaking to him a man called William Jay and uh, he called in on John Newton and they were talking about a, a friend they both knew a man they both knew who, who had a really wretched past really bad character and that he 
he had been, they'd heard news that he had been converted. Um, so William J. says to John Newton, he may be converted, though I'm not certain of it. But if he is, if he is converted, this individual they both knew who had a, a bad background, if he is converted, I shall never despair of the conversion of anyone again. And John Newton replied, I never did since God saved me. I never did since God saved me. The nature of our mission, we are sent to take the invitation of God's grace to anyone we can find. So the wedding hall is filled with guests from every kind of background. What a great place to end the story. But it doesn't end there, does it? The parable doesn't end there. Instead, Jesus gives us the third act, verses 11 to 13. And verse 11 to 13 show us it's another warning. A warning about thinking we can accept the king's invitation on our own terms. Because when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. He had nothing to say. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I said earlier to the children and that it's likely that the king had provided wedding clothes for his guests to wear. We see that on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. Joseph's brothers been given new clothes with um, um, Mordecai in the book of Esther. And remember that this is last minute guests coming in just off the street. The food is ready. And I think it is likely that the king has provided the wedding clothes and yet here is someone who has decided he can come to the king's banquet on his own terms wearing his own clothes and of course still today there are many who think we can come into God's holy presence wearing the what we think is our own righteousness but what the bible calls filthy rags There are those who think we can come into the presence of a holy God clothed with our good living, our church attendance, our baptism, our taking of the Lord's Supper, our acts of charity, our prayers, our religious performance. No, friends, a thousand times no. If you think you can come to the feast on your own terms, what will God say to you when he asks, how did you get here without wedding clothes? And what will your reply be? You will be speechless. You will have nothing to say. Nothing. We can only take our place at the feast if we are clothed in the garments the king himself has provided. Nothing less and nothing else will do. Only the righteousness of Christ can cover all our sins and only the perfect righteousness of Christ can take away our guilt and our shame. It is only Christ who has taken away everything that stands between us and God and has nailed it to the cross so that everything is ready. Only the righteousness of Christ can make the good and the bad fit for heaven and life in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember our call to worship? Isaiah 61 verse 10. How the prophet Isaiah 
saw from afar that which would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? Because he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. A robe of his righteousness. How could a holy God clothe his sinful people with a robe of his righteousness? But now we know, now we know, by clothing us with Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When we put on Christ by faith, we put on his righteousness. We put on the wedding clothes and we sit at the table at the feast. So let me ask you, as we bring this to an end, let me ask you the most important question I could ever ask. Have you put on Christ? Have you put on Christ? Have you put on Christ? Have you put on the wedding clothes that God has provided for you in Jesus? If you have, no matter how dirty your t-shirt, no matter how good or bad you may think you have been or you have been, then you will be welcome to stay and take your place at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that with the coming of Jesus into this world, everything is ready. We thank you that through his obedient life for us, his atoning death for us, his glorious resurrection for us, and his ascension for us, everything is ready when he returns for us. Everything is ready for the wedding feast to begin. Oh, Father, in your grace and mercy, may we be found ready on that day too, clothed in his righteousness alone. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.